Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You are listening to Young's Time Movie Review at Young's Time Movie Review.com. And we, we are the Children of the Guys, of Disney, we have to watch another Star Wars movie. Coming to you from the remote cabin on the infamous Crystal Lake, it's the Lunchtime Movie Review here on the MHM Podcast Network. Each episode, we look back at one of our childhood favorites to see if it stands the test of time. I'm Chad. And I'm Patrick. And today, we are reviewing 1982's Friday the 13th, Part 3, written by Martin Kit Roser and Carol Watson. And it's directed by Steve Miner. Today's horror classic uh, stars Dana Kimmel, Tracy Savage, and Richard Brooker as Jason Voorhees. But before we begin, we have a word from our sponsor. This film is brought to you by 3D. Does your most recent moving picture suck? Is it lacking pop or any semblance of a Hollywood moment? Is your movie destined for the bargain bin at your nearest Walgreens? Then it's time to add 3D to your film. 3D can turn your ordinary film tropes into ordinary film tropes that look like they're coming out of the screen. 3D can help cover the wooden acting of your film leads because no one will be even looking at them because they are looking for something in 3D. 3D can help your below average film look only slightly below average. Just look at our track record of mediocre to poor success. Jaws 3D, Amityville 3D, Parasite, and who can forget the very forgettable Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. So come over to 3D and turn your small piles of cash into slightly bigger piles of cash. Or not. (laughs) I forgot about Amityville 3D. That wasn't on my list. Damn. (laughs) Okay. Well, the year was 1982. E.T. phoned home without using an iPhone or an intergalactic cellular plan. Indiana Jones pissed his pants in a room full of snakes before an island of Nazis had their faces melted off by the wrath of God. Schwarzenegger and Stallone introduced us to Conan and Rambo, respectively, and are still trying to figure out how these two are will never be expendable. It was the year where teens everywhere learned they were not as horny as the high schoolers in Porky's or Judge Reinhold who cranked one out while fantasizing about Phoebe Cates' bare breasts. In the middle of all of these historical cinematic moments, Paramount Pictures presented a horror film that literally jumped off the screens while causing us to fear ice hockey goalies who play the puck with a spear gun forever. This infamous film was titled Friday the 13th, Part 3. And this time, as Patrick mentioned, the real horror was that this was presented to audiences in 3D. The assholes who produced and released Friday the 13th, Part 3, 3D, should have put a giant spoiler alert at the beginning of this flick because it starts with the last 5 to 10 minutes of Friday the 13th, Part 2, giving away the entire ending 
including the fact that Jason Voorhees is alive and crawling around the Crystal Lake region. They pulled the same stunt at the beginning of Part 2, but then continued on with the same principal characters. This time, we were told to forget about everyone from Part 2, except for our antagonist and his mother's severed head. So, Jason butchers a husband and wife who operate a filthy general store on Crystal Lake, but they are easy to disdain because the wife bitches and moans the entire time she is on the screen, and the husband is a disgusting pig who can't wipe his own ass after using the toilet. From there, five college-age kids and one couple who are living the Cheech and Chong lifestyle hop into a van to spend a weekend at a cabin on Crystal Lake. Chris, the van driver and cabin owner, is returning to the woods for the first time in over a year since she was attacked by a grotesque creature that eerily resembled the Elephant Man. She's also looking to reconnect with her old flame, Rick, who doesn't care that he has the personality of the Elephant Man. Chris's closest friends, Andy and Debbie, are a beautiful pair of humans who constantly bang like bunny rabbits and have a bun in the oven to show for it. When Andy isn't shagging with Debbie in their hammock of love, he is walking around the cabin on his hands so the blood will rush to his other head for a change. Andy's doughboy roommate, Shelly, tags along for the weekend, but is constantly annoying the entire gang with fake suicide and homicide stunts. Shelly's only redeeming value is that he sacrificed his own life so Jason Voorhees could obtain the goalkeeper's mask which would become an iconic piece of horror movie folklore. Oh, and Shelley also used Kevin Bacon's yellow Volkswagen Beetle to run over a pair of motorcycles owned by a biker gang who were terrorizing him and Chris's friend Vera. Now that we have the cast of characters all lined up, here's how the legendary Jason Voorhees systematically eliminated his victims like Joey Chestnut devours hot dogs on the 4th of July. While Ali, the leader of the biker gang, gives a blowjob to the gas tank on Chris's van, Jason kills Ollie's girlfriend, Fox. Poor Foxy was playing around in the nearby barn, and Jason mounted her to the rafters with a pitchfork to the throat. Ollie's partner in crime, Loco, heads into the barn smoking an unlit cigarette when he's on a, a hunt for the fox. However, Loco is introduced to Jason's murderous ways via a pitchfork to the guts. Allie enters the barn only to have Jason treat him like Mike, Punch, Mike Tyson's punching bag. Does Allie live? Does he die? We don't know for sure until later on in the movie. Later in the evening, Shelly tries to get into Vera's pants by seducing her in his scuba gear while wearing the previously mentioned hockey mask. Vera rejects Shelley's nerdy Fangoria way of life, which sends Shelley wandering towards a shadowy figure in the barn. The figure will eventually slash Shelley's throat, then don the hockey mask to cover up decades of untreated acne and gingivitis. Jason, posing as a taller, slimmer, more homicidal version of Shelley, shoots Vera in the eye with Shelley's spear gun then drops the weapon in cold blood a la Mark Michael Corleone in The Godfather. Now we get to the gory parts of the film. After Andy and Debbie fornicate in an indoor hammock, the luscious Debbie takes a post-coitus shower, stimulating everyone in the audience. 
However, Jason ruins everything when he uses a machete to chop Andy from his nuts to his sternum while Andy walks down the hall on his hands. (laughs) Then Jason really pisses off the audience when he pierces Debbie from back to front with the machete, ruining her gorgeous body and a very durable hammock. When the lights mysteriously go out in the cabin, Chuck, the Tommy Chong wannabe, goes to the cellar to check the fuse box. Jason provides Chuck with an all-time high by electrocuting Chuck with the fuse box. Jason then turns his attention to Chuck's girlfriend, Julie, and puts a red-hot fireplace poker through Julie's guts. Chris and Rick return to the cabin to find everyone dead and the cabin under attack by gale force winds. Jason quiets Rick forever by giving him a skull crusher, popping his eyes out of his head. Voorhees then comes for Chris, who puts up a fight that would make the Real Housewives cast envious. Chris stabs Jason in the hand, chest, and leg before trying to escape in her van. Little did Chris know, Ali emptied the gas out of her primary gas tank, and the van gets stuck on a small bridge. Jason attacks Chris and chases her into the barn. The hockey-masked murderer locks them in the barn, but is knocked out and then hung by Chris, who uses a hay pulley to try to kill her attacker. Jason gets himself free and tries to chop Chris into small pieces. Chris is saved by Ali, who has miraculously come back to life. Jason chops Ali into pieces, then takes an axe to the head by Chris. Jason drops to the barn floor, seemingly dead forever. Chris takes a small rowboat to the middle of Crystal Lake. A nightmare of Jason coming after her wakes her up from a deep sleep, and Chris paddles her way back to shore, but is attacked and dragged underwater by Mrs. Voorhees' dead corpse. We cut to a group of police officers helping a traumatized Chris get into the back of a squad car. Jason's quote-unquote dead body is still laying on the barn floor with the axe securely planted in his skull. Ripples form on Crystal Lake, an indicator that more terror may be on its way. The end, I think. We hope. (laughs) But we know it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way, yeah. You want to give me so, the... Patrick, what are the numbers on this fine film? All right. Friday the 13th was released on August, Friday the 13th, 1982. Uh, it was also re-released for some reason on May, Friday the 13th, 1983. No Friday the 13th film was released in 1983, which I thought was surprising because I always thought they came out pretty much annually through the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was released the same day as Pink Floyd's The Wall, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the re-release of Star Wars, and An Officer and a Gentleman. It was released the same month as Homework with Joan Collins, Cheech and Chong's Things Are Tough All All Over, The Last American Virgin, The Beastmaster, and Chad's all-time favorite film, The Pirate Movie. Didn't we review that one recently? Yes, we have. (laughs) Okay, good thing. I wasn't on it, so I'm mad at you guys. So I know. How could we not have you on your all-time favorite film? Lori and I apologize. Okay. Right. Made on a budget of $4 million, it grossed uh, just over $34.5 million, was the 21st highest grossing film of 1982, right behind The Sword and the Sorcerer, Best Friends with Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn, 
and Richard Pryor's Live on the Sunset Strip, and right in front of Tron, Young Doctors in Love, and Sophie's Choice. It is the fourth highest grossing uh, Friday the 13th film in the series, right behind Freddy's versus Jason, uh, the 2009 remake of the original Friday the 13th, and the 1980, 1980 original. So, in its time, it was the second highest grossing film of the series until they started remaking shit in the 2000s. Uh, AFI, uh, Jason Voorhees was nominated for 2003's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list, ultimately did not make the 50 top villains. Uh, there was interesting facts about this is there was two novelizations of this film, one released contemporaneously with the film and another one that was released around 1987 by two different authors. And this obviously, of course, is the introduction of the hockey mask, which has become synonymous, synonymous, <laughs> I can say that word eventually, with Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th series. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has this at 7% critics and 42% audience. And that is the numbers on Friday the 13th. So in 1980, Paramount Pictures introduced the Friday the 13th franchise to moviegoers and tried to scare them away from summer camps forever. One year later, Paramount tried to cash in with a hastily made part two, but essentially succeeded in making Jason Voorhees a household name as a horror movie murder slash monster, and that was about it. What followed in 1982 was a whole different kind of horror film. Acting and storylines are essentially killed off in favor of stylish gore and creative killings. And to make it more interesting, Part 3 was filmed and released in 3D, as we've talked about already. Down the road, horror films like Jaws 3 and Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, would incorporate 3D into their films, but Friday the 13th, Part 3, was a pioneer, so to speak. I remember the advertisements for this film being everywhere when I was a kid, but I didn't see this one until 1987 or 1988 on home video. Eventually, I would be able to see 3D versions of this film on both VHS and Blu-ray. So I have to ask you, uh, Patrick, what are your memories and experience of this film, Friday the 13th, 3D? You know, I, I was not a horror film fan in the 80s. I saw them occasionally, usually at sleepovers with other kids and stuff like that. My introduction to Friday the 13th was the part four the final chapter, uh, mainly because I knew who Corey Feldman was because of Gremlins, and I remember watching that with friends. And then ultimately, I think I, I I saw I think I saw five shortly thereafter that probably a year later, and ultimately started working my way into the other films in the series. But I don't have a distinctive. I know I saw this one, and I remember renting it. And uh, during summer months and watching it with like other you know teenage kids uh, in the neighborhood just to keep ourselves preoccupied, but it really made little to no impact on me. You know, the first one I remember distinctly, not Jason the killer, his mom. Second one I remember distinctly because it's Jason. Uh, and then four, five, and six uh, stood out in my mind. Seven, seven's about the only one I probably know as less than this film because. Uh, Nothing other than I knew he got the hockey mask. 
nothing was even vaguely familiar to me uh, other than a spear gun being shot at the camera. I distinctly remember that 3D effect. <laughs> yeah, I remember the trailer for this one being every place. I mean, the the visions of a fox uh, dropping to the barn floor with her face going straight to the pitchfork. Yeah, Chris screaming at Jason. Jason coming through the window. Um, just various things I can remember. I was only like eight or nine years old at the time. But yeah, this thing was just every place. And I remember my oldest brother and a bunch of his friends going to see it and coming back and telling me about it. And I was just freaked out just listening to them talk about this shit. But um, yeah, I probably didn't see this one until, like I said, 87 or 88. I think it was 87. I may have seen the sixth movie and one night and for whatever reason that got sparked my interest in going back and starting from scratch and catching them all up to that point so yeah i didn't see it in the theater but once i saw it i was in you know mesmerized by my horror movies um this is one of my seen too many times for whatever reason uh but yeah i i just remember this being huge back then and then once i saw it i was into it so I always said there was this uh, was one of the most attractive casts in horror movie history. Uh, Dana Kimmel, Tracy Savage, and Catherine Park are complete knockouts, in my opinion. While uh, Jeff Rogers, who could have replaced the leading man in hundreds and hundreds of 80s films, wasn't the most unattractive dude ever. Other than Dana Kimmel, everyone was working on their first and second movie, maybe, and the studio has admitted to favoring the aesthetics of the actors and actresses over actually using acting skill to get parts in this movie. Uh, so what are your thoughts of this ensemble cast that Paramount used for this one? Uh, forgetful. I mean, <laughs> as, much, as much as you sit here and say, like, hey, this is one of the more attractive casts, I actually thought the last film had a, one oh. of the more attractive casts that okay. especially our my favorite Mickey Mouse uh, t-shirt wearing a skinny dipper in the middle of the night. I thought that, I mean, I thought she was absolutely gorgeous in this film. Uh, you know, I, I, not that I'm saying that they're not attractive, but there was nobody in the, in the cast who I found distinctive uh, as far as acting ability uh, really set themselves apart. I, this was, this watching this one was let's get to Jason. And, and, and that's all I was looking for is let's get to Jason as much as possible. And um, it, it's interesting looking at of why these hippie, older hippie people hanging out with these teenage kids. It just, it, it didn't, you know, and maybe not teenage, but you know, college age kids. I, I would, it just, it just seems to be this kind of smorgasbord of like random characters that you just wanted to shoehorn into this as much as possible. There's, there's, uh, the, there didn't seem to be any cohesion between the characters. And once they get to the lake, they break off in pairs pretty much mm. for the remainder of the film. They're never a group cast from that point. Only when they're right. in the van are they a group cast. Yeah, it's basically, like I was saying in the summary, they basically got him to the lake to line them up so then he could chop them down right. one by one. And that was the, the little Indian's premise that they established in basically in part two. And then I think went forward with, especially in this one. Yeah. So much like the casting, Paramount chose to focus on the use of new age cameras and the 3D technology over the writing and uh, directing. Uh, did you notice this uh, while watching part three this time around? Because I must admit I had to foc I did focus more on 
how the scenes were framed and shot once I learned that that was the focal point of this film over, you know, the acting and the actual storylines. Well, I mean, I've never seen this in 3D. Uh, mm. I've only seen it in on VHS and then watching it uh, streaming off Vudu for this. Uh, and I have not seen this since the 80s. This is not a, a particular favorite of mine. I know there's a 3D version out there that you can see, uh, but mm-hmm. I have no interest in going and finding it, <laughs> even though I have a 3D television. It, it, it's just, you know, the, the 3D, it, it's what was wrong with 3D films in the 80s was the 3D is a gimmick and not you know, it's not a story point where like 3d today, like with 3d technologies that you, the screen comes alive rather than, Oh, the spear's coming right at you. Or, you know, like what, what was it? What was it? The eye, that guy had an eye at the beginning that had an eye, the snake pops out of the, like the rabbit hole at the beginning. Yeah. The, um, what's the other ones? The, the whole introduction comes out of the screen the poker that he puts into Julie's guts comes through the screen. Yeah, it's there's a number of things that pop yeah. off. Yeah, I mean, but it, it you can see that in the 2D version of that, okay, here's the gimmick. But they went a long way to create that. And to me, that's not an effective use of 3D. And, and that's and, and I remember seeing Jaws. I saw Jaws 3D in the, te- mm. in the theaters back in the day, and it did the same shit. You know, mm-hmm. so it was it was done for gimmick, not for you know, actually advancing the technology and making it a much more entertaining film. Yeah, because I have, I know I had a VHS copy at one point that came with 3D glasses and it didn't do diddly. Um, <laughs> I do have a Blu-ray that has the old red and blue 3D glasses and that I watched it the other night, just the highlights, just to see what would happen in 3D. And yeah, like I said, other than the introduction or the the yeah the credits at the beginning him shooting the spear gun oh what i'm trying to think of any of the others that really really stood out nothing major it was oh and like when he's jason has the axe in his hands or in his head and he sticks his hands out at chris those sort of pop off the screen but it's still the old black or red and blue glasses technology on this blu-ray i have and it's terrible i mean it makes it almost unwatchable so i'm glad i watched it on a streaming service first and then went back to that blu-ray to see if it the 3d actually worked and i don't know what it happened in the movie theaters back in the 80s but it didn't work for shit this time around (laughs) i will say that yeah but as I mentioned, um, and Patrick did as well, Part 3 introduced the hockey ma- goalie mask that would become synonymous with uh, Jason Voorhees and the Friday the 13th franchise from here on. The fans and producers felt the burlap sack from Part 2 identified too much with the Elephant Man. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the mask and Mr. Brooker's version of Jason Voorhees in this film? Because I have to say, this is my favorite Jason from all of the films, uh, the Friday the 13th films. He is more like a Michael Myers, a slow-paced, methodical, creepy-as-hell character in this film. And from here on, to me, he's too much of a machine that has lost any semblance of human elements. Well, first of all, the mask is iconic. And Mm. even before I watched a Friday the 13th film, I knew what the mask stood for. 
And that was after only two films, this film and four, um, because mm-hmm. that was the first one I saw. And I saw the video VHS for four before five came out. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it was short. It came out shortly thereafter. And at that point in time, the the killer had only been in three of the four films and the mask had only been in one and a half films, if you will. It, it's a much better gimmick, if you will, than the burlap burlap sack. I somewhat agree with you that I was I had the same kind of feeling that he is much more Michael Myers like in this film is that he you know he's somewhat you know he's just he continues I'm going to still keep coming after you almost like a shark if you will but uh, that there's there's some vulnerability to the character um, although I will say Michael Myers has evolved well past that at this point in time too in the most recent Halloween films uh, but. You know, I, I thought this is strange contradiction is that they see him just walking most of the time when he goes after his people and they tend to, you know, wreck a car or hurt themselves so that he can catch them. But like in the flashback for the one girl who remembers a year before when the implied sexual assault uh, by, mm-hmm. the, by, by the previous Michael Myers, he's running in that. I mean, he's chasing her in, in that scene. So it seemed kind of weird that they kind of changed the character a little bit, if you will, uh, for, uh, for, for that flashback sequence. But no, I, I can't, can't say it's my favorite Michael Myers. I don't know if I have a favorite Michael Myers, uh, but he doesn't seem so nearly invulnerable the way that they did, wrote him specifically after, I think it was, it was six when Jason lives, uh, comes yes. back. Uh, that's that's when he becomes kind of this uh, undead machine that there's nothing you can do to stop him, and then it be, then it becomes almost comic. Yeah, because uh, I agree because this one I noticed a lot more, like I said earlier, more of the hey, let's have him stand in the shadows as a mysterious person and have the the prey, if you will, go and try to figure out who it is or what he's doing or why he's walking in and out of the barn or the shadows or making a noise a little bit more psychology to it than just, Hey, uh, he's walking straight towards somebody and he's just going to chop them their head off. You know, even how he played cat and mouse with some of the people in the barn to get them to a position where he could kill them. Um, I, I appreciated that one more. He, He was very methodical, cerebral, if you will, about how he approached some of it. And that's, I appreciated that because you get down the road here, it's just, he's a machine. He's just a killing machine, and it doesn't become fun anymore. It's just they try to find new and gorier ways for him to kill people, and there's no sense of he's thinking through it. He's just killing them and finding weird mythology or methodology to kill them in the future movies. And you mentioned part six. That is the one where he gets electrocuted to come back to life, and that whole movie he's just like a tank moving forward to find the next person to kill and it gets really really old and boring yeah so like comedies in my opinion horror movies have really tough times uh coming up with a a strong ending especially when they are part of a franchise and you're looking to keep the antagonist around in a documentary i recently watched on this film uh, they stated that there were three endings written and or shot for this film. The first one is the ending that we see in this film where uh, Chris is escorted off by the police officers and Jason is lying dead inside the barn. Uh, The second one is in one of the novelizations that Patrick mentioned. 
Uh, that ending has Chris return to the barn to find all the dead bodies in it. And she grab gets mad, grabs a sickle, and decapitates Jason, basically ending him forever. What? No, was uh, he alive before that, or is she just decapitating his dead body? I, I, from what I understand, she, he was alive, and she killed him by decapitating. Okay. Yeah, as I understand what they were saying, and then the third ending, which I guess was actually shot, and I saw a still photo of it, but not the full real by real presentation apparently in that one chris wakes up from the while she's in the rowboat she believes she sees rick in the cabin so she rows her way back to shore then goes to the cabin and as she opens up the cabin door jason takes a machete and decapitates chris ending the movie at that point in time so I'm one of those. Do you like how this movie ends or do one of these other options in your opinion could have made, would have one of these other options have made this movie a little bit better off? Well, with their intent to end the series with this film, I think what they shot was good. It ended Mm -hmm. the series, although they didn't end the series. They came back two years later and made four, which was going to be the end of the series with Friday 13th part four, the final chapter. Uh, the middle sequence of the 10 f- film series. <laughs> but uh, So I, I obviously I don't think the ending fits with where they ultimately evolved this film. I think the, the sequence where uh, he decapitates the final girl would have been more consistent with what, how the series necessarily played out. Uh, the decapitating Jason sequence, that seems more... Uh, more uh, like Halloween H2O, uh, where <laughs> Laurie Strode is decapitating Michael, but yet he's back in the next film. Uh, you know, the, it just, that would have been too definitive uh, to me, and you didn't leave yourself an opening. And I guess technically they could leave themselves an opening. You can always come back. But I, this film, I was kind of surprised at how it ended. I expected one more jump scare or something else to imply that the, the evil continues for, uh, for the next film. But right. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. Uh, that that's the least of my issues with this film. Uh, terrible acting, uh, uninteresting sets. Uh, it it just it, it it felt very confined. You know, like yeah. they, they this is supposed to be a, a lake, and they were literally within a hundred yards of this cabin and barn for the entirety of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I must agree because yeah, that's one of the parts of it. I think they got away from the lake um, aspect of it or the crystal lake aspect of it because they decided to focus more on the technology and the 3d and all that as we mentioned earlier so they found a set more on the west coast than on the east coast and they just said okay we're near a body of water that's going to be crystal lake and we're just going to film it on this remote set that i think uh, they built in some way shape or form and just shot it there on the cheap as best they could which is also why they then brought in actors and actresses who had very little talent and were looking to get jobs on the cheap and put it on their resume. So in the grand scheme of things, this thing was made on the cheap and they probably turned a hell of a profit on it. (laughs) Probably. Yes. So I always have to ask, uh, when it comes to these type of uh, movies, uh, what was your favorite kill in this movie, Patrick? Because there were a number of unusual kills, uh, from Jason in this one. I actually, um, it was a little bit unusual, 
the guy doing the handstand who basically gets halved from uh, nutsack to throat, I would assume. I thought that was an interesting kill, at least visually the way they shot it, because they're following him and then suddenly there's feet and he looks up and he dies. I thought that I, that was I, I take that back. That is a kill that I remember from watching this film a long time ago. And so that's probably my favorite kill in it. Yeah, I'm with you. I guess uh, the gentleman who played Andy, he learned how to walk on his hands specifically to get this role from what I was reading. And um, you now know why he learned how to walk on his hands uh, specifically to get this role, because the best kill and I to me, one of the most memorable kills in the entire umpteen movie franchise is watching someone get chopped down with a machete from the nuts to their sternum or whatever. Good God, man, that is just brutal. I couldn't imagine a worse way to get killed. I mean, being decapitated would be horrible, but this was, ah, God, it's still creeps me out even thinking about it yeah but, yeah, but, but you but no blood <laughs> no blood because the girl comes out and doesn't notice like anything immediately like yeah what is all this on the floor i mean she's i, that, that, I thought that was an interesting take on that apparently you don't bleed a lot from when you're you know halved between your nutsack and your sternum you know what you have a good point because i remember laughing when chris came back with rick to the cabin she was pissed off that they left the bathtub yeah. uh, water because they were going to ruin the cabin but yet you're absolutely right there was no blood from all the killing yeah. that was going on i mean because I, I just imagine between scenes which you're not seeing is you know jason with a mop just like oh gotta get this cleaned up we're gonna figure it out there's no, no gonna be no big surprise at the end when the bodies just start falling out all over the place Oh, shit. You know, that is funny. I, there is a lack of blood in this now since you say that. Oh, man. Even with Trish or yeah, Debbie, excuse me, Debbie getting this machete through the chest from behind, you would think the blood would have spurted out as he's stabbing her. Um, the, the various people getting stabbed in the guts in this movie. Right. Yeah, I don't remember a whole hell of a lot of blood in, in those scenes either. Nope. Okay. All right. So. Let's go across the table, back and forth here, Patrick. Uh, so does Friday the 13th stand the test of time, in your opinion? Uh, no. It, it was made for a 3D gimmick in the 80s. Uh, you know, I honestly think Friday the 13th would have ended with two, but for the kind of small resurgence of 3D films. And it was like, hey, this would be the third film. We just put a D at the end and we put a couple of jump, sh you know, scenes in it. And we're going to make money because people will go pay for 3D. I paid to go see Jaws 3D. And that's the worst piece of shit in that entire series, <laughs> including Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> but uh, but it is, it, you know, it's it doesn't hold up other than creating the hockey mask that, you know, adding the hockey mask that they they've added that to the lore of Jason Voorhees. That's the only thing that's a lasting legacy from this film. And ironically, when they rebooted it in what, 2009, 2010, they just skipped to the hockey mask. There is no precursor. Well, they also skipped to Jason. <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> so they skip her, her, his fucking mom entirely. But <laughs> so, yeah, this is an easily forgettable film, and that's why it's pretty forgettable. As I said, the only one I probably know less than this, and probably the only one I've seen less than this, is uh, I think it's a new blood, 
where yes. he goes against the psychic or, or telekinetic yes. or something like that. And yeah, I don't, I saw that one time and I think I may have actually seen that one in the theaters and have never revisited it because it was, it was absolutely horrible. So I, I had uh, this one. I remember, I know I've seen multiple times because of the hockey mask component of it, but it's not, it's not one that if they ever reboot the series and get to the third film that I'm going, Oh, I hope they remake it shot for <laughs> shot. <laughs> because it's not what I want to see. Yeah, the one you're speaking of, I always said they made that to have Jason meet Carrie in some way, shape, or form, and it just didn't come out that way. No. But yeah, I, I'll agree with you. This one does not stand the test of time. I think it's a okay horror film when you compare it to many of today's trashy horror films. But in the end, I don't enjoy watching this in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, as I said, I think this Jason is one of my favorites to watch because I think he's cool. He's got a little bit of humanity left in him. Um, and I think some of the females in this one are very, very attractive. But there's almost no psycho- psychology in this. And when it comes to horror films, I have to have psychology of some kind in them. And this one has very, very little. So I only watched it, rewatch this about once every five to ten years for whatever reason, if the mood fits or I'm going to record on it. Um, but I'm ready to move on to the future uh, chapters in this series and see how I feel about those now compared to when I watched them uh, five or ten years ago for the last go around. Well, that does it for our review of Friday the 13th Part 3. All of our MHM Podcast Network reviews can now be found exclusively on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel to be alerted to all of our newest releases. While on YouTube, please give us a thumbs up and leave a brief comment about today's film and review. If you feel so inclined, please follow the MHM Podcast Network on Twitter and Pinterest at MHM Memories, or MH Memories, excuse me. If you can't find a copy of Friday the 13th Part 3 in a neighborhood video store, if you still have a neighborhood video store, then head over to our website, moviehousememories.com. Once there, look for Friday the 13th Part 3 in your feed, and you will find an Amazon link that will allow you to purchase your very own copy. And if you're lucky enough, you'll get the 3D version. Lastly, please let us know what you think of this podcast in the comments section on our website and rate it from 1 to 5 stars on that page. If there are films you would like for us to review, please send us an email and email you can reach us at comments at moviehousememories.com until next time i'm chad and i'm patrick and we can hear some screaming coming from the woods so we better get the hell out of here and you guys are invited podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakarada 
at serpentsoundstudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>